Good to see all of you today. Um, if you don't know me, my name is Kyle. I'm one of the pastors on staff and uh, spend most of my time with our middle and high school students over in the hangar. It's great to be with you, though, today to be able to um, talk through this series and to hang out with you guys today. If you are um, watching us online, hello. Nice to see you. My mom. Mom, how are you? Good to see you. I was out visiting my mom this week. Um, she had a pacemaker installed. Um, so if you could pray for my mom. Her name is Sandy. I know it's embarrassing her right now. Um, but hi, mom. Good to see you. And uh, if you're watching us in the hangar, hello, everybody in the hangar and everybody in the great room. We're so glad that you are joining us today. So um, have you ever been in a, in a setting where um, it's, it's just kind of loud, you know, maybe like a, like a festival or maybe at a concert or, you know, like a loud party, and um, you kind of find yourself drawn into a conversation, but it's really loud, and you can't hear, and, you know, people are, like, elevating their voices so they can talk to each other. Have you ever been in that situation? You know what I'm talking about? It's kind of loud, and everybody's kind of talking like this so that you can hear what people are saying, right? One of those situations like that. Um, Jesus found himself in a situation like this, not too dissimilar from that, okay? Um, there's something that was called the Festival of the Tabernacles, okay? And it was a, a full-time festival where the Jewish people would gather um, together in Jerusalem, and not only to remember God's provision for them, you know, to be thankful for that, but also to look forward to the coming of the Messiah, okay? And what's a little funny about this is that Jesus is talking to his disciples as they're getting ready to go to this um, festival. And um, they're saying, hey, Jesus, you're going to go to the festival, right? He's like, no, I think, I think I'm going to pass. I'm, I'm not going to go this time. And they're like, well, you should go. You know, come on, you should go. And they go, you know, it's part of the festival is looking forward to the Messiah and, you know, you're that guy, and, you know, maybe, maybe you should go, you know, and kind of hang out. And he's like, no, you know, I'm not going. You guys go. You have a great time. I'm going to pass for now. But they won't let up. And they say, come on, you got to go. Um, let the people see the stuff that you do. Let them see the works that you do. And they even add in, they say, no one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. They lay that line on Jesus, and they go, since you're doing all these things, show yourself to the world. Come on, let's go. And Jesus still resists and says something like, no, no, you guys, my, my time has not come, but, but you go. You have a good time. I'm going to hang out here for a while, okay? So they leave, but for some reason, a little bit later, Jesus changes his mind, and he goes to the festival, but he kind of goes in secret, right? He doesn't tell anybody that he's going, and he's just kind of making his way through this loud crowd, okay? But people, of course, recognize him, right? Um, they heard of him, or maybe they've seen him. Some of them have heard what he had to say, and they recognize him, right? And because they recognize him, they start kind of coming up to him and they're asking him questions and it's kind of this loud setting, right? And, and he's having these conversations with people and he's speaking loudly, apparently, so people can hear what he has to say. And at one point, imagine this scene, right? We've all been in this situation, right? Um, where you're kind of hanging out somewhere, it's kind of loud, and you're kind of talking to somebody, right? And you're both talking loud and you begin to talk and you start to talk and it's really loud in the room and then it goes quiet. 
right? And you're the loudest person, right? And everybody hears what you have to say, okay? And that's kind of what happens to Jesus. And here's what he says, right? It's really loud and he's talking. He goes, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. (laughs) Really quiet. He says this out loud and everybody turns and goes, what? (laughs) Let me read it one more time. He says, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. Now the way that this likely would have been understood at the time by his audience is this. And N.T. Wright, as we've been um, talking about in this series, gives us a lot of illumination about this, okay? Jesus is promising his followers that those that believe in him to come to him to quench their thirst, and you should read into this, um, to get life answers, to live according to the ways of Scripture, and to follow his teaching— People who do that will themselves be life carriers, right? You become a life carrier who can quench the thirst of others. They will be people who know what it means to really live and to be fully human. That's this concept that we've kind of been talking about in this series so far. We're in this series, Restoring Broken Signposts, and we're saying that if if we can get our minds around some of these um, ideas and truly think about them the way that Jesus does, we can also truly live and learn to understand what these longings that we all have, what they mean for us, how to fulfill those longings, you know, the right way, the way that we were meant to, the way that Jesus helps us understand them. And we've talked about different longings so far. We've talked about this longing that we all have for justice and the longing that we all have for love. And we'll talk later in this series about the longings for beauty and for freedom and for truth and for power. But today we're going to dive into this longing for spirituality. That's what we're going to talk about this morning. All right. Um, There are these seven things that on our own, all these things, we, we can't Um, seem to get them quite right if we just do it ourselves, right? There's always something missing if we kind of just try to do it by ourselves. For example, you know, love turns selfish. Justice is denied, and spirituality becomes self-absorbed, okay? We all long for spiritual connection, right? Um, We all long for that. We want a spiritual connection. But sometimes I think in order to feel like we are connecting deeply to God— our desire to express that spirituality, we develop and we live with conclusions that can be too worldly. They're too inward-centered. Conclusions where there's maybe no right or no wrong or no objective truth that eventually leads to having, you know, an inflated view of ourselves. We look inside instead of outside to God for these answers to life. But the gospel points to something completely different. The gift of God's presence. The gift of God's presence. We're we're called to invite that presence in and live out of it and not ourselves. Here's one way to kind of think about it, all right? If you go through um, the the narrative of Scripture and the way that we were 
um, sort of taught in the way that we see in Scripture about how we connect to God and what it's about, okay? Let's go all the way back, all right? Old Testament Scripture and these ideas. The first one where we talked about this idea of God's personal presence, it showed up and it dwelled in the tabernacle, okay? And you're like, wait a minute, tabernacle. Let me think about that for a second, all right? The tabernacle, okay, think Moses and the altar and a curtain separating everyone from this holy place where God lived and God showing up in the wind and in the fire, okay, and as a cloud. And the tabernacle was this portable thing, right? The people are traveling around um, and the tabernacle, we get these instructions on how it should be built. Moses gets the instructions um, from up on the mountain about how this tabernacle should be built. And so wherever they stopped, they would rebuild this portable tabernacle, right? And God's presence would show up in there and Moses would go in there and commune um, with God and God would be in this tabernacle, right? And it was supposed to be this way until a permanent um, tabernacle, a permanent place could be built in Jerusalem. The tabernacle literally was this vehicle through which God manifest his presence among the people. So when you saw the tabernacle, When that got put up, wherever they were, they knew that God's presence was in that. His presence was in this tabernacle, okay? And then the temple, right? Then the temple. This is where the the ark was placed, right? The ark was placed in there. And we're told that there... um, in the description of the temple, we get these vivid descriptions of people just being everywhere and around the temple, and the chief priests would take over what was happening there, and they would take the ark into the holy place, and they would set it down in this inter-sanctum, right? And then they would withdraw, and a cloud would appear, and that would be the presence of God. And there's a verse in First Kings that says this. It says, the priests were not able to continue ministering for the glory of the Lord filled the temple. So we're supposed to get this image of, can you imagine this, you know, where everyone is kind of gathered around, there's this expectation of the priests sort of um, immediately beginning their priestly work, but things don't go according to plan because the glory of the Lord fills the temple and it's so big and so vivid and so powerful that no one can even get near it or in it, right? And imagine what this must have been like as people were traveling um, through the desert, and they would come back toward Jerusalem, and they would see this temple, and they would say, oh, that is where, that is where our God dwells. It would be this comforting thing. They would see it and know that their God dwelled in this temple. So the presence was in the tabernacle, this kind of temporary thing, and then in this permanent temple, right? The difference was the temple was a permanent structure um, built by David's son, King Solomon, right? And then we're told through Scripture that God was fully and completely revealed in the person of Jesus. Fully and completely revealed in the person of Jesus. The foundation of our spirituality as Christ followers is supposed to be and is now grounded in the presence of Jesus by his spirit, the Holy Spirit. The living God now makes his home not just with his people, no longer in the tabernacle or the temple, but with the people and in us through the Holy Spirit. 
It's kind of full circle, right, from the tabernacle. Even before the tabernacle, if you read from Genesis on and you think about Adam and Eve in the garden, here's what we're told. It says, the Lord used to walk with Adam and Eve in the garden of Eden during the cool of the day. Very intimate, right? (laughs) The presence of God right there with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day, walking through the garden, the closeness, intimate fellowship that they enjoyed with the creator before sin. Sin comes and crashes everything down and it falls apart. And having sinned, Adam and Eve, you know, they're banished from Eden and the presence of God is no longer with them. And since that day, the goal of salvation has been to restore that face-to-face communion between the Lord and his people. One of the most vivid illustrations that we get about what this is like and how we can enjoy this and understand it um, comes from the book of John that we're studying as we go through this series. And it's the book of John, chapter 15, verses 1 through 8. If you have a Bible and you want to pull that out, great, do that. I'm also going to put those up on the screen. But we're going to read that, and I want you to, to hear it. It's this illustration of the relationship between Jesus and his followers, that of being the vine and the branches. Okay, and here's what it says. It says, I am the true grapevine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch of mine that doesn't produce fruit, and he prunes the branches that do bear fruit so they will produce even more. You have already been pruned and purified by the message I have given you. Remain in me, and I will remain in you. For a branch cannot produce fruit if it is severed from the vine. And you cannot be fruitful unless you remain in me. Yes, I am the vine, you are the branches. Those who remain in me and I in them will produce much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Anyone who does not remain in me is thrown away like a useless branch and withers. Such branches are gathered into a pile to be burned. But if you remain in me and my words remain in you, you may ask for anything you want and it will be granted. When you produce much fruit, you are my true disciples. That brings great glory to my Father. So Jesus is the vine, the true source of life for us. We're the branches, right? Connecting to him, drawing that life from him as branches draw the necessary nutrients to survive and flourish, right? And this gets really vivid. Uh, A couple of weeks ago, um, you know, we've had several pretty heavy storms around here this winter, this summer. And a couple of weeks ago, um, there was a couple of branches that fell in our front yard. If they were still um, healthy, so to speak, branches, they had green leaves on them, right? And they fell, and um, I didn't get to them for a while. Sorry, Loretta. And um, uh, they were kind of laying there in the, in the yard, get them for a while. And as the days went by, the green <laughs> leaves went to brown, right? They just, they just, they were no longer good because they were no longer connected to the tree, right? They, they died off. And the vine, it represents this intimate closeness with the Father through the Son, worked out by the continuing presence of the Spirit, And we, as the branches, okay, we extend out into the world as, as if you will, little temples, okay? We extend out as you, if we, like, little temples, okay, where God truly dwells in the intersection of 
heaven and earth, okay? Look at this picture. Just like this poor kid who had to go as the temple for Halloween, notice the stained glass door, okay? We are little temples, okay? Turn to your neighbor and say, you're a little temple, go. You're a little temple. Okay, um, by the way, this reminds me, um, one Halloween, um, we, uh, you know, uh, our kids always wanted to go, obviously, and um, my wife would make some of the costumes, okay? And uh, did you ever do that? Raise your hand if you made costumes for your kids. Okay, a lot of you, yeah. And Bennett wanted to be a spaceman, Okay, my youngest son wanted to be a spaceman, right? And so we, my wife got some boxes and some aluminum foil and all this stuff and put it over him um, and made this costume and he little hat, looked like a spaceman. He came down the stairs, okay, after having this all done. And my older son, Carson, who's here today, by the way, over there, and um, he looked at Bennett and he goes, what are you, a box? And, you know, Bennett is more sensitive and kind of, kind of got upset a little bit, right? Now, I searched the Internet looking for this picture, and I'm pretty sure that Bennett has scrubbed it from the entire Internet because I could not find it. But he had this little spaceman shoot on, this suit on with this box thing, right? And I'm like, no, Bennett, you look exactly like, uh, you know, like a robot, a little space guy. You look great, right? And so they go to a, the first house, right, and they ring the doorbell, and the lady looks at them, and says to Bennett, what are you, a box? I'm standing there. We didn't get a lot of candy that night. He was, he was gone. He was done, okay? Anyway, back to the sermon. <laughs> Here is a really interesting thing, I think, from my study this week, okay? On the temple, right, this structure that got built, on the temple in Jesus' day was a carved vine. Okay? It was carved out, a vine on the temple. And here Jesus is describing his relationship with his followers as one where, in effect, your relationship with him replaces the closeness that you would have had with the God of the temple. No longer was it distant, but there's a new closeness, and it's with the person of Jesus. And that relationship allows a full expression of of spirituality, when we live according to the Spirit of God and not out of something inner of ourselves, but instead out of the Spirit of God. As followers of Jesus, we're empowered by His Spirit to believe and to trust and to obey and to follow Him, being sent out into the world as carriers of God's, you know, powerful and rescuing and healing and transforming love that is renewing the entire world. Notice those two things, okay? We're empowered and we're sent. We're empowered and we're sent. We bear witness to a whole new way of life that is, in fact, deeply spiritual. We bear witness to that when we live out of that, okay? What's deeper? Tell me what is deeper than living a life dedicated to the teachings of Jesus and going out into the world practicing those things so that others may benefit and that they may be themselves may know Christ through that. What is deeper than that, okay? No inductive Bible study is deeper than that. No 12-week course on Leviticus 
is deeper than that, where we own that, where that kind of spirituality, the Jesus-centered, rooted spirituality, is alive in us and it empowers us to worship and to trust and to obey. And because we do those things, we take them out into the world and others benefit from that and may themselves be attracted to the person of Jesus and live out of that. And it repeats and it repeats and it repeats. Closeness of Jesus, where we experience and empower life, where we can, without fear, believe and worship and trust and obey and follow him, that's the deepest form of spirituality. Closeness of Jesus that calls us to carry his message, to rescue hurting and healing people around us, to help that transformation happen in the world is the deepest form of spirituality. Jesus centered in our lives is the heart of Christian spirituality. I think we can understand this a little bit more if we go deeper and deeper into the book of John, okay? And we consider John 15, 15, all right? Here's what it says. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. Again, N.T. Wright points out, in his book, Broken Signpost, that Jesus is saying our relationship is different because of the cross. He's saying your relationship with me is different because of the cross. It's intimate like a friendship. He says you're, you're not a temple worshiper, okay, a little distant from me, seeing me out there in the distance and feeling reassured by that. Instead, there's a new life with you and me connected as friends. Now, some of you might be saying, oh, I've been waiting for this. I've been waiting for this. Friendship. Sounds like mushy spirituality. I'm friends with Jesus. Right? I'm friends with Jesus. The spirituality of Jesus is my friend. It could be like this t-shirt, okay? Right? Or babies who wear this. Okay? And you would be right to be a little suspicious, right? When we start talking about, oh, friendship with Jesus, that's the spirituality, right? But, but I want you to understand what Wright is saying here, okay? He points out that Jesus defines this friendship not as a, not as a casual sense of friend, as in, you know, someone that I kind of know that I really like, but instead in fully biblical terms. All right, it's all over the Gospel of John, how Jesus defines what it means to be in a friendship with him, okay? It's sometimes easy and relaxed, and other times it's challenging and demanding. Let's dive in, okay? In chapter one, the very first chapter of John, it's John the Baptist, okay? And, um, G- and John, John is there, and um, Jesus is there, and John's disciples are there, okay, John, and they're there, and Jesus walks by. <laughs> Jesus walks by, okay? And some of these disciples of John, they see him, and they start following him. And we're told in Scripture that li- Jesus literally turns around, and he says to them, what do you want? <laughs> it's in the Bible. He says, what do you want? As if to say, don't, <laughs> don't start following me unless you're serious, 
Okay? In chapter 2, he says to his mother, when she walks into the room, they're at this wedding, right? She walks into the room with an empty wine bottle, and she looks over the top of her glasses like this, okay? Like your wife looks over the top of her glasses at you when you leave this much milk in a gallon carton in the refrigerator and don't buy another one. Me, okay? She looks over the top of her glasses at Jesus and says, they're out of wine. (laughs) And Jesus says, what do you want me to do about that? My time has not come. Okay? By the way, notice that he makes more wine, right? Why does he do it? He does it for his friends at the wedding, right? In chapter 3, he meets a man named Nicodemus who says he is Jesus' friend and loves God, but maybe has not internalized any of that. And Jesus kind of has this long conversation with him, and the long and short is he says, why would I tell you more about deeper stuff when you can't believe the things that are right in front of you? (laughs) The Samaritan woman in chapter 4, he calls out her lifestyle and then lovingly invites her into a new life of living water, right? And so on and so on. Jesus is saying, look, I'm present, I'm real, I can be talked to, all right? I'll talk back, I'll initiate conversations, and sometimes bring up topics you don't want to talk about. Like Peter in chapter 21 of John, when he says, Peter, do you love me? That's what Jesus means when he talks friendship. All right, let me show you something that might solidify um, this idea a little bit. Um, I need someone who will help me out with this this morning. Do I have someone who's willing to kind of uh, help me out with this? Steve, you're the man. If you could come up to the middle, do you mind? This is Steve, everybody. Say hello to Steve. All right. Um, Steve, if you could uh, take this for a second, okay. Um, I've got two big things of salt, all right. Um, One, one says mine, okay, one says yours. Okay, this is mine, and this is yours, all right? But I want you, as I read this scripture for a second, we take those, and will you dump um, some of both of those into that bowl? That's all you gotta do, just some of each into that bowl, okay? Pray for Steve, by the way, he's a seventh grade small group leader, okay? So, okay, so, all right? Um, Now, I'm gonna read this scripture. If you go ahead and dump both of some of those into that bowl, go ahead and do that, all right? Here's the scripture, okay? It's from the Old Testament teaching on the importance of salt, okay? Um, And how it reinforced God's relationship with his people, the covenant that he had with them, okay? And, And here's what it said. Season all your grain offerings with salt. Do not leave the salt of the covenant of your God out of your grain offerings. Add salt to all your offerings. That's good. You can stop right there, okay? All right, now that you've done that, could you show everybody, just hold that bowl up and show everybody that. Everybody see that? Some of Steve's is in there and some of mine is in there, okay? Now, if you don't mind, now that you've done that, can you pour your salt back into your container and my salt back into mine? No, I cannot. No, I cannot. No, I cannot. Okay, you can just leave that sitting there. Guys, give it up for Steve for a second. 
Now, can't do it, right? It's not, it's not really possible, all right? So what does this have to say about friendship, okay? Salt in ancient times was necessary for life. It purified and preserved foods. I read this week that in biblical times, most men would carry around this little small leather bag of salt in their belts. And when they entered into friendship with someone um, or into some important agreement, each would take some salt from each other's bag, right? And they would trade those. And so I would take some salt and put it in his bag, and he would take some salt and put it in my bag, and then we would shake up those bags, right? And they stated the terms of the agreement and shook up the bags, mingling the grains of salt, because it was no longer possible to go into the other person's bag of salt and retrieve the original salt grains, right? The covenant was permanent. It could not be broken. This practice sprang from what God said about his covenant with his people. He said, when you bring me a grain offering, make sure it's salted every time. When you do this, you can count on me honoring my covenant with you to restore you and walk alongside you again. God's people understood his covenant with them to be permanent. What he gave can't be taken away or taken away just like the exchange of salt between two friends. You know, God knows that we need some symbolic things sometimes, some visual things to remind us of a far larger reality. Salt signifies to the people of God, no matter where you find yourself, you can return to me. Just come back. Salt was known to God's people as a symbol of perpetuity and incorruption. And people refer to it this way. It is a covenant of salt forever before the Lord. This is the kind of deep relationship that Jesus seeks with us, the kind of friendship that he offers. Remember what we said. You know, as followers of Jesus, we're empowered by his spirit to believe and to worship and to trust and to obey and to follow him. Being sent out into the world as carriers of God's powerful, rescuing, healing, and transforming love that's renewing the whole world. That is Jesus-centered spirituality. The question I always ask when I write these messages and, and I, they're, 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 they minister to me <laughs> as, I, as I study and hear things, I always think, okay, um, what's, a, what's a practical thing I can do? What's a step I can take to want that, to own that, to have that in my own life? And um, I was reading this week a devotion. Um, is a man named Emmanuel Paul Peter. And he literally wrote this just a week ago. And he said, here's a step for Jesus-based spirituality in your life. In the scriptures in Psalm 46, God says this, be still and know that I am. Be still and know that I am. God is telling us, you know, step away from all the busyness and step into the space where you get to be still and to know God. In the sixth chapter of John, we see Jesus who had been going pretty hard. And thousands of people are trying to get near him and be healed and to learn. And he finds out 
that his cousin John the Baptist had died and he withdraws and he gets away and he finds space to reflect, to be drawn back into you know, what really matters. And often Jesus takes that time to be alone, takes time to be still, takes time to pray. He went out to the mountains to pray all night and continued to pray to God. Sometimes it's just simply that simple where we find space, where we pull back, where we get away, and that ultimately helps us be still and to know God. Will you pray with me this morning? God, this morning, um, we invite you in. We thank you for who you are, God. I would pray that each and every one of us would find a moment to reflect and to renew that important friendship with you. Or let us invite you in in deeper and deeper ways so that we can live out of that Jesus-centered spirituality. Oh, we're grateful for who you are, for what you've done for us on the cross. We lift up all of these things and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.